welcome to the second episode of Airmic Talks, your fortnightly dose of news and views from the UK's risk and insurance management community. If you are not already, please remember to subscribe or follow the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or your podcast app of choice. I am your host Richard Kutcher and due to recent events, today's episode is unsurprisingly primarily focused on the coronavirus outbreak, the risk professional's role in this situation and some discussion on supply chain as well. Now, later I'll be joined by James Life of Control Risks and Dr. Anthony Renshaw from International SOS to discuss the outbreak in more detail. And then I'll be speaking to Ian Bell of Arthur J. Gallagher to discuss supply chain more broadly. But I am joined to begin with by Julia Graham, Deputy CEO and Technical Director of Airmic. Julia, as we would expect, Airmic is receiving a lot of attention and questions from both the media and our members on coronavirus. First of all, I would like to emphasise that we are recording this on the 5th of March. So by the time you listen to this podcast, the situation is likely to have progressed quite significantly, both in terms of the spread and or containment of the virus, but also in the actions and response of governments and organisations. But Julia, thinking about coronavirus and epidemic, pandemic situations, what is the first job or role of the risk professional in a situation such as this? Thank you for the question, Richard. I think the first thing I'd like to say is that the coronavirus exhibits an awful lot of the hallmarks of an emerging risk. Um, Because an emerging risk doesn't have to be something that's new. Disease isn't new, but what it can be is a known unknown, to use the Rumsfeld language. So the first role of the risk manager should be to be using information that you've got from your various systems that you use for horizon scanning and for scenario modelling and access that information to inform you as to those next steps. After that, I'd say the first role is to pick up your crisis management plan because you will have one, won't you, as a risk professional and the risk manager will be part of um, that plan and it will have clearly divine roles and responsibilities, one of which should be yours. So where is the plan, what does it say, and who are you going to call? So I think you've started to touch on it there, Julia, but how important is the enterprise risk management approach in such an incident? This type of incident's all about enterprise risk, because I've said it's an emerging risk, but it's actually an emerging enterprise risk, if that's not too many um, adjectives. Um, because an, this type of incident will involve everybody from your human resources specialists to your finance specialists to your people in technology to your colleagues who sit in all sorts of different departments in the organisation, including those in functions such as your company secretarial or legal teams. And then what questions, you've started to touch on some of those business units, what questions of the business should the risk professional be asking internally? Well, I think before you start zooming off and asking questions, you want to take the plan out, you want to look at what your pandemic scenario says you're going to do, um, because there's some really great information, um, both commercially and free on the web, uh, about what you can do in an event like this. So it's not too late if you haven't got a plan to actually quickly assemble what your scenarios might be. And then I think the sort of questions you're going to ask are really driven by that enterprise risk management approach. You need people round a table or virtually or physically, depending on the circumstances, and you need to agree what your priorities are. Now, for most organisations, their immediate priorities are around their people. 
understandably, and therefore you want to know where your people are, are they okay, uh, you need to be agreeing what the communication to those people uh, should be, do they stay where they are, should they come home, but it's people knowing where your people are and knowing what you're going to say to them. That would be the first thing that I'd be doing. Well, thank you, Julia. That sets us up really nicely for the rest of the podcast. Well, I caught up with James Live, Associate Director of In Control Risks, Crisis and Security at Consulting Department for Europe and Africa, and Dr. Anthony Renshaw, the Medical Director of In Health Consulting in Europe for International SOS. James and Anthony spoke to me at the 21st Pandemic Update for Employers Conference in London also on the 5th of March. The situation country by country is likely to have changed by the time you are listening to this discussion. But as it stands, uh, China appears to be getting the containment of coronavirus somewhat under control, although, of course, this continues to cause great disruption to supply chains, transport and business in the region, while the primary um, hotspots uh, currently are uh, new cases appear to be in, in South Korea, Italy and Iran, of course, and we're hearing more cases in America this week as well. We have heard quite a lot, James, in the media about the drop in stock markets, disruption to supply chains, travel and event cancellation in particular. Thankfully, not this event. Uh, What are some of the other less obvious impacts that are are being borne out? A big impact that people are concerned about is the the anxiety, the the, the general not knowing what's going to happen, the ignorance about what's happening. So, So looking at the obvious things is the priority. Um, but it's also looking at, uh, at the areas that you can look at for any disruptive event because you will have plans in place. If you've got good business continuity plans, you are a good 80% of the way there. And then what I'd say, add to that, increasing your knowledge of what you're concerned about by talking to specialists, people like Anthony, that, you know, that, that have got the medical knowledge about the issue. But you've got to be building, you've got to be building on uh, your contingency plans. Um, the, the most advanced organisations are not writing contingency plans, they're reviewing them and implementing them. So, Anthony, are there effective monitoring tools and techniques that can be put in place uh, in such an epidemic situation? And, and what are these and how are they being used? So the good news is we've learnt a lot from previous epidemics and there are a lot of very clever people who are um, put together software and capabilities to monitor things from a global um, scale. Uh, There are tools that the WHO have put out and and bodies like the Johns Hopkins uh, group um, able to look at case numbers. Um, We have as well um, put out a lot of information to Uh, the public and to our um, uh, clients uh, freely available uh, online and uh, the vast majority of it is readily accessible to businesses right now. Another thing that we found very useful talking about today um, is is looking at what does the future look like so we don't know when the when the when the impact is going to end but as much as in anticipation you know, what we advise organisations to do before you have a pandemic, before you have an issue, before you have a crisis, to put the plans in place. Um, but at the same time, when you're in a situation, a bit like where we are today, what does the end look like? What does the recovery look like? And organisations, you know, not just looking at the, the potential impacts, the negative impacts, but also, you know, when this ends, which at some point it will, what does that look like? What do we want it to look like? What are the conversations that we can have? And this is where we find scenario planning Uh, which is useful for looking into worst-case scenarios, it can also help you to look around the corner and start putting in place measures, thinking, planning, that's going to help you in the long term. 
So, Anthony, do you think large organisations and businesses are, are not only aware of the exposure and risk their own operations face, but also their responsibility uh, to wider society to act responsibly in, in such of these times? Yeah, I think there is an increasing realisation that business has a role to play in this, and there's a big movement, actually, within businesses, and especially at um, the, the senior level, that uh, business can have a tremendous impact on uh, on this. I was talking to... Uh, a group only f- on Friday who, uh, you know, they oversee 20, 250,000 people globally. Now, what they do in terms of the, the, the amount of education and guidance they provide their staff actually can have an impact, and not just on the country, but on multiple countries. These are organisations that are uh, often in 90 countries or more, like uh, similar to our own organisations. So uh, business has got a role to play. And I also say that bodies like the World Economic Forum have been saying to businesses increasingly over the last few years that um, the businesses need to make uh, this issue a priority. Um, It was uh, even a priority, one of the top priorities that WHO put out just in January, even before we even knew about this. That planning for epidemics is uh, is a key thing for society as a whole to be doing, and business plays a, a very significant role in that. And what we're seeing is a reminder um, that um, that whilst there are a lot of benefits of lean business, uh, a lot of primary economic benefits to lean businesses, when lean business comes up against a disruptive event or a shock, uh, that can have costs that are unforeseen, and it can make a diff- an organisation find it very difficult to recover. So I think what one of the lessons that may come out of this and any sort of general disruptive events uh, yeah. that you need to combine the benefits of lean business with having some sort of uh, resilient capacity and that may be in the form of contingency planning uh, having teams in place uh, and again there are lean approaches to resilience um, that also complement your standard lean business um, but I think at the same time emergency services in any um, event or crisis become overwhelmed uh, but the extent to which the emergency services are overwhelmed is directly related to the extent to which individuals and organisations, including businesses, take responsibility for themselves and for their employees. People take responsibility for their own actions. So, James, there's obviously going to be uh, a time for kind of a lessons learnt to uh, discuss in regard to organisations' preparedness for a large-scale epidemic or, or pandemic at a later date, and I'm sure uh, you both will be probably involved in some of those lessons learnt discussions and presentations in the future but in regards to the here and now what immediate steps are you seeing organizations take in response and what types of steps are you advising yeah so what we are seeing are people making decisions so this kind of decisions you know it could be a a implementing a a no-fly policy Uh, now is that the right or the wrong decision the the, the point is that nobody knows at the moment uh, and there's a big difference between uh, doing nothing and deciding to do nothing and communicating that if you are going to do nothing about the situation you need to communicate that and the reasons behind it because your employees uh, want to know and if they're not hearing anything then they don't think that the organization or the government uh, are putting all the plans in place they want to hear what's happening there's an expectation of transparency um, although I'm just going to pick up on the lessons learnt point uh, and I know the British military have uh, been advanced in this level what we look at are lessons identified um, recognising that a lot of lessons may have been identified, that doesn't mean they've been learned. Anthony, what, what, what kind of steps are you seeing being taken? Well, I'll try and split this really into three sort of main areas. The first is information and advice, and, and what we're seeing is there's so much information, it's almost a distraction. And so having access to credible 
uh, accurate and, and um, timely information to make decisions is absolutely critical. And that information source must be business-focused because we've seen how complicated it can be to negotiate government websites and the like um, where it's, uh, you know, frankly impossible to find information occasionally. Uh, and it's only recently, actually, that many companies, uh, many countries, I beg your pardon, have actually provided guidance to, to businesses. So information advice. The second bit is um, a focus really on the traveller um, because travel is a major risk area and the traveller, the business traveller, is a risk group and so companies need to provide support to those business travellers um, either giving them information or proactively uh, guiding them through some of the, the travel restrictions they might be facing. And in the most extreme example, perhaps bringing them out as we've um, seen in parts of China over the last few weeks. Um, the, the third area that companies are starting to look at is um, what do we do if we have a case and what sort of planning do we need to do in the workplace to manage that? Um, this is a crisis like um, similar to other crises, but there are some very specific health-related actions that a company needs to do that you simply don't need to do in other crises, and you need to do it in a very specific way to make sure that your business continues operating and doesn't get closed down in some countries, and also uh, protecting those groups that um, might be uh, affected vulnerable groups, uh, etc. So quite a number of different activities that, that companies perhaps have not thought of that um, they're now increasingly starting to put plans to address. I think, you know, we're also seeing a lot of uncertainty and how do you manage uncertainty with an organisation? One way is to be transparent and honest about the, uh, the, the, the reality of the uncertainty. Another thing is to make, base your decisions on values, uh, to make moral, ethical decisions. And in a crisis situation, organisations are pushed hard on those values. Uh, and this is a great opportunity to look at what those values mean. People appreciate it when organisations live by their values and make decisions based on values. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but this is, again, where contingency planning uh, and scenario planning and exercising can help to take people to places where they're a bit uncomfortable uh, in a relatively low-risk environment. But I'd say uh, my number one golden rule in the crisis is the application of expertise to the situation as quickly as possible. And either you've got that expertise yourself uh, or you've got it within your organisation or you reach out externally to someone who knows what they're doing. So, James, what are tending to be the priorities for organisations as they start to un- understand their exposure and respond? The good news is um, is that what we're seeing a lot of organisations that we're working with, uh, it, they're implementing their plans, and these are all based on their commitment to their employees, to their people. Uh, there's a useful acronym from the oil and gas industry, PEARS, People, Environment, Asset, Reputation, uh, uh, and Stakeholders. But uh, what that means is if, you, if your decision-making, if your actions are primarily people-based, people-centred, then your workforce, your employees, they're going to appreciate it because they're going to feel as though they're being... You know, someone's thinking about them, someone's looking after them, and that gives them the opportunity to start taking responsibility for their actions. But So this is where work-at-home policies really help out. If you can do that, not everybody can. Um, but at the same time, if they're going to start closing schools, it's a possibility. You've got to talk through the implications and talk through the actions. But if that means that uh, parents have got to stay at home look after their children, what are the implications? How long can people do that for? Two, three months? It becomes untenable. So... Looking around the corner through scenario planning is one way to remove a large section of, ex- of, uh, of uncertainty, uh, and you can improve that by asking uh, experts. 
people still need experts. They, they, they certainly do. Uh, so, Anthony, um, you, you both, both yourself and James, obviously work with a lot of organisations and will be working with live organisations in this crisis now. So how varied are you seeing that preparedness uh, and response being between organisations you have contact with? We've seen lots of organisations which are right on top of it and lots maybe not so on top of it. I presume it's a, wide, it's a wider umbrella. It is. I mean, I think with any epidemic... Um, or pandemic situation um, there's a cycle uh, of hysteria and inertia and I think a proportion of companies are in the inertia stage and have only just started realising that this is a risk for them as a business Um, typically when they've uh, understood their exposure to China and what that could mean to them and they're really sort of starting off in the process I think the other end of the spectrum are those companies that have been affected with uh, diseases like SARS or Ebola uh, maybe they've been out in remote parts of the world and, and actually had to deal with outbreaks in their uh, project sites and they tend to be uh, really f- fairly well versed in how to manage health crises like this and they're simply rolling out the plans that they had before uh, reviewing them, making sure they're valid for, for COVID-19 and cracking on but I think the majority of companies are actually kind of in the middle they've, they've, they've done some amount of planning um, a little bit. Uh, they are at the stage of trying to sort of information gather, try to answer some of these key questions that are preventing decision making at this time. And uh, I think that's the biggest challenge for most companies we see at the moment. I'd say that uh, for the kind of organisations that we work with at Control Risk, the good news is that the kind of organisations that like to work with companies like Control Risk are the kind of organisations that have plans and policies and procedures in place. So what that means is that you're just reviewing them and looking at the uncertain elements. Um, but you're sort of 80-90% of the way there or, and have got the right attitude. Um, at the same time, we're seeing new clients coming in, uh, people that don't have plans in places, uh, and, are think, and are asking, you know, is now the right time to write a contingency plan? It's not the right time, um, but it's a better time than not writing it, and it's better than trying to plan it tomorrow when you're even more uncertain. But we're, we're very happy to work with whatever organisations that find themselves in trouble. We've got expertise and we've got access to, to people that really can help and that's what we're here to do. James, Anthony, thank you for coming on to Emmet Talks. Well, originally episode two of Emmet Talks was going to be all about supply chain, but COVID-19 changed those plans slightly. However, prior to Christmas, I did sit down with Ian Bell, sales director within the major risks practice at Arthur J. Gallagher. Ian was one of the contributors to AMX Supply Chain Guide, originally published in 2019, and he started by telling me the kinds of conversations he is currently having with risk professionals concerning their supply chains. Organisations already understand uh, the increased complexity of supply chains, particularly over the last 10 years. Uh, It's not just about managing those linear supply chains of Tier 1, Tier 2 suppliers, uh, but very much an integrated web of suppliers. So they're becoming more aware of the fact that uh, their Tier 1 and Tier 2 suppliers may even be supplying each other before it hits them as organisations. Supply chains are becoming more efficient. Uh, We've obviously seen an awful lot in the last few years around the motor industry and Brexit, talking about just-in-time delivery and how important that is. But, of course, most businesses are facing greater disruption, not just because of external events, um, but also understanding the full consequences of their own actions. For an example of that would be um, where they have a single source of guarantee of supply, and that particular supplier faces insolvency. 
uh, or an interruption of some form, or the quality of the actual product uh, is actually deteriorating or is creating a problem for them. Um, so what I would say is in terms of conversations, they differ to conversations we'd have had say 10 years ago in that I think organisations are much more aware of supply chain vulnerability. However, what I haven't seen is an increased board level focus. I mean, there was an interesting uh, survey carried out by the Business Conti Continuity uh, Institute this year, which mm. you may have seen, yeah. uh, where they were saying that, yes, disruptions caused to the respondents to that survey around tier one had fallen over the last 10 years from around 60% to 52% of the total disruptions that they were seeing. But of course the converse was true of tier two and, two and tier three, where they had grown. Um, but as part of that survey, what they asked their membership was, what sort of priority does supply chain get a boardroom within your organisation? Now, five years ago, I think the last time they did a survey was 2013, the level of response there was 34%. 2018, 35%. Wow. So absolutely no change whatsoever in how boardrooms regard this as high priority. Now, clearly, of course, there's a lot of high risks that boards are having to deal with. Uh, but in most manufacturing businesses that I deal with, of course, there's nothing more important than their, the robustness of their supply chain. So a surprise in one respect that risk managers, insurance professionals within businesses are still struggling to get the resource, the attention at board level and the sponsorship they need to manage that effectively. So do you think that has any kind of impact on the inquiries that you might get from from clients on this topic do you see an increase in inquiries or because there's not that attention at the higher level are you, are you not seeing so many of those inquiries uh, the the take up of specific standalone supply chain insurance is, is still low i think the barriers to that although the, there's an increasing debate about it and this podcast and the guide that you're you've recently issued i think are a great example of the attention it receives but i think there's an underlying frustration in terms of the solution available to insurance mm. professionals. Um, the type of insurance solutions are primarily still focused around good old property, business interruption, trade credit type solutions, uh, rather than the necessary solutions that the modern businesses are looking for. Uh, now there are obviously some barriers to that, you know, and why aren't we seeing an increase in inquiries? Frankly, I think those who have made those inquiries over the past few years have been rather frightened off by the industry. Um, the data requirement is very onerous and I think that has been a bit of a problem, both gathering it or getting it from internally within their mm. own organisations. Yeah. Because of course you do have you know, a rather uh, difficult and fragmented approach within most complex businesses to getting the sort of data that insurers would want. Another problem that we've had is the insurance industry itself, in that I don't think as an industry, whether it's brokers or insurers, we've been adept at actually developing the right solutions and then promoting them to the customer base that would buy them. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, one would start from the perspective that most businesses are saying, I have an interruption or a disruption to my supply chain, what insurable solutions are available in the market, Ian? My response to that is, currently, whilst you may find a, an all-risk type solution, it very much looks like a property policy, mm. just upgraded. 
Um, but you're having to look at fragmented insurance solutions across both property, casualty, financial lines insurances and cobble that together into what you hope might be an effective jigsaw. Effectively, most finance directors are after one thing. If I have a disruption to my supply chain, ignoring possibly wars or hostile acts, but not excluding things like political risks, yeah. I just want an insurance solution that I can call on. Is that available? And the answer today is no, it's not. So, and that, that's something we addressed as you referenced the guide as well, Ian. It's something we really addressed in that. I think there's a page towards the back of, we said, I think there's a quote from you which says it's very rare to find those standalone, if at all, supply chain policies. And we, we showed some of those extra policies you, you just mentioned, which can cover some of those uh, some of those risks. So what kind of questions should risk professionals be asking of their suppliers and, and their own business units internally regarding the makeup of, of the supply chain? Oh, well, well, I think one of the uh, useful aspects of the guide that you've produced is that um, you asked some of the respondents, including myself, the same question, yeah. which was, you know, just give us a handy few questions that, you know, risk professionals could be asking internally. Um, certainly from my perspective, the obvious questions are, do you actually understand your supply chain exposures? Uh, now, Obviously, there's all sorts of techniques one can use in mapping those out, but it's really as simple as just obtaining a list of all your known suppliers at every stage of your manufacturing process, and then looking at your customers as well, because of course, supply chain is just not to you as the manufacturer, but also downstream as well to customers. Next question, of course, is once you've identified them, how are they currently being managed? More importantly, what exposure would that present to you as a business if something was to happen to any one of those suppliers? Now, quantifying that particular problem is very difficult for most organisations. What you'll then find is immediately you'll get distracted by people wanting to justify how good their business continuity plans are, because most organisations internally will immediately feel threatened by someone who isn't working in their business area, yeah. asking those very leading questions, particularly procurement, particularly the operational team, who of course are managing risk probably on a Kaizen approach anyway. So the sensitivities internally to most businesses is probably the biggest problem you've got in approaching this subject. Um, hence my point a little earlier on around the need for board sponsorship. Tremendously difficult for a very senior risk or insurance manager who may be one or two steps off the board to actually have and get the access to the different parts of the businesses just to answer those first two questions. I mean, on the flip side then, what is it, and you said about the difficulty of getting that data that the insurers might be looking for, what is the kind of information that you hear insurers wanting to look for when working with insureds on their supply chain exposures, whether it's uh, a standalone policy, as we said, was rare, or some of those other policies that can touch on the supply chain? Um, tends to be hugely asset-based um, in terms of inquiries. By that, I mean uh, what you're looking at are professionals within most insurers who have either had a trade credit or a property BI background, and inevitably they're biased towards those sort of questions. So they look at this as firstly a business continuity, business resilience issue uh, in terms of risk management. Uh, the questions they would ask around that, of course, once you've identified those suppliers, is that we're straight into how you're managing those supply risks. 
That in itself, of course, doesn't necessarily provide the management is, that's one is needed. Why? Because you're looking at the individual supplier in isolation rather than any interrelationships they may have with each other, never mind with you as a customer. One of the barriers I said a little earlier on to the take-up of these solutions has been that most clients feel that the data requirement from insurers is quite onerous. Um, by that I mean they want full surveys of particular sites, supplier sites, they want ex full exposure of the contractual relationships between supplier, manufacturer and customer. All of this of course as you would appreciate is also highly confidential yep. uh, but isn't readily available in one place to provide to the insurer. What I've found in my experience is insurers will be extremely data hungry in this process yet the actual solution they then come up with feels substandard, yeah. suboptimal to the data that they've actually requested from the organisation. And, and presumably in, in this kind of transition to a hardening market or a hardening market, those questions are only going to get tougher probably and that, 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 that hunger for data is only going to get only going to get more. Um, I, th I think, yes, you're absolutely right. And the other part that uh, I've seen, certainly in the last couple of years, is we've got weakening economies around the world. Uh, whilst we have this integrated global economy and everyone accepts you know, supply chains are global, they're not local to countries or even continents, the weakening of external economies, trade conflicts, obviously more recently the fear of the China and US trade conflict and the ripple effects that will cause, but also the attention that boards are now giving to sustainability, climate risk, mm. is all informing their strategy around their partners and suppliers. Um, and from an insurance perspective, all of those external factors can't be quantified by the insurer. It's difficult enough for the economists to actually judge what's going to happen in those situations. But you know, where your traditional manufacturer is concerned about the insolvency of a supplier or the guarantee of supply or quality even of supply from an overseas supplier, for instance, uh, it becomes even more difficult for the insurer to actually judge that risk, measure it and price it. Well, that is all we have time for in this latest episode of Airmic Talks. Thank you to all of my guests this week. Julia Graham from Airmic, James Life from Control Risks, Dr. Anthony Renshaw from International SOS and Ian Bell of Arthur J. Gallagher. Don't forget to subscribe to Airmic Talks on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or any other podcast app to ensure the latest episodes are downloaded straight to your device. See you next time on 29th of March.